Okay, let's turn to Romans. We're going to continue in Romans. This is the 40th time we've met for Romans. I think there's a little about resurrection in there. I'm not sure. Kind of starts in 1 4, goes to 4 25, 8 34. Really permeates the whole thing. And we will be having the Eucharist or the communion service immediately following. Hopefully, there'll be a fairly smooth segue. Today, I want to speak on retrospection, resurrection, and rectification, the three R's, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. Retrospection, that's a horizon we see looking backwards. Resurrection and rectification, which I think is a little better fine-tuned word than justification, a word in Romans. In Romans... It's only from viewing the horizon of our situation retrospectively that we understand our previous condition under the power of sin. And that's an extremely important interpretive point for Romans. It's only when we look back retrospectively on our situation that we even begin to understand our condition and the desperate condition of being under sin. It simply isn't fair when evangelists try to make you admit you're a sinner because you have no idea. You have no idea. We have no idea until we're in Christ by an apocalyptic action of God and then look back. And when we do, we understand the desperate plight from which we've been saved and we will also at the same time grasp so great the salvation that has been wrought on our behalf and that was finished when he said finished. And so it's only by viewing the horizon retrospectively that we understand the momentousness of our so great salvation and the deliverance that God wrought for us in Christ which then continues to work for us in the Holy Spirit. And that is what we call the spiritual life, which I've called in the past and continue to call a higher integration of human living, higher because we've been elevated into the heavenlies, an integration because we're still human and we live this life in the flesh. But it's a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, If you're going to explain our salvation in a small word, in a small phrase, it's simply that, in Christ Jesus. And the life we live is a newness of life. We've been raised up into it. It's a newness of life. And it's lived in newness of spirit. Those two verses are pivotal in Romans Romans 6.4, Romans 7.6. And I don't know if we'll hunker down on a particular passage in Romans. This is sort of a sweep of Romans from the view of resurrection. So we come to realize and to understand that as Jeremiah 31, 11 says, and that's a key verse for you if you want to look at it sometime on your own. 31, 11 of Jeremiah says, the Lord freed us and reclaimed us from those who are stronger than us. 
the Lord redeemed us, freed us, and reclaimed us from those that are too strong for us. Now, when Israel says this, it's a reference to their deliverance through the exodus from slavery to Egypt. But that all comes into the New Testament as our liberation from the powers of this cosmos called stoichia in certain passages of the scripture. It means the powers that were too strong for us, and that includes sin as a power and death as a power, and even the law, Torah, as hijacked by sin, and then by certain demonic principalities and powers, which once we were enslaved, and they were too strong for us. The parable that comes to mind is Jesus speaks of a strong man who holds his property and his goods and his armament in his own possession. He's very possessive of all that he owns. But a stronger man breaks in and spoils him of all that he owned. The stronger man is Jesus Christ. And he broke in and spoiled those powers so that they could no longer hold us. Also in Isaiah 26, 11, the scripture says that once other lords than God ruled over us, once other lords than God ruled over us, and now Jesus Christ, our Lord, is our Lord, and only his name is related to the Lord of Lords. So those two passages, Isaiah 26, 13 and Jeremiah 31, 11, are only appreciated when we have a retrospective view of where we were under lords other than God, under masters other than Christ, under powers too strong for us, and we are delivered and reclaimed by God. So even more significant is that of Christ's death. Christ's death is only appreciated from a retrospective view provided in resurrection. And in fact, resurrection and ascension retrospectively looks back at the death of Christ. When Paul instituted the communion service for the church until Christ comes, which is to be practiced until Christ comes. He said, we remember his death until he comes. The the accent in resurrection is back on the death. The resurrection enlightens our minds and hearts as to what occurred in his death. And that's why he retains the scars in his hands, his side, his feet. He retains those permanently because resurrection is the viewpoint from which we view the death, the significance of it. This is found, I think, pretty clearly in Romans 4.25. You can look there if you want to for a moment where it says Jesus, our Lord, in verse 24, was handed over because of our trespasses. And raised up because of our justification. The word I use the word because of to translate dia, D-I-A in both cases in the Greek. 
was handed over because of our trespasses. And we have to ask, as we have recently, whose trespasses? Well, that's rooted in Isaiah 53, 12. But John helps us out. Paul and John have a very profitable partnership because John says he died for not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. So we have to have a universal perspective here. He was handed over because of our trespasses. That's the whole world's trespasses. All have sinned. Romans 3.25 on the front end. Romans 5.12 on the back end of this verse. All our trespasses. And raised up because of our justification. And so resurrection looks back at the fact that when he was handed over and died for our trespasses, we were justified. It's a retrospective view. Raised up because of our justification, meaning because we were justified, rectified, set right by Christ's death, he was resurrected. Because I live, you will live also, Jesus said. When he died, we died. If one died for all, then all died. So what happened when he raised from the dead to all? This is a perspective that's, well, the Bible says, and I heard this on the way down, meaning I heard it in the Holy Spirit. When you preach the word, when you prophesy or proclaim the word, do so according to the measure of faith that you've been given. Meaning, everything that I preach and teach from this pulpit, I have to have first believed it. And that's the primary gift I have is not preaching, but faith. I believe that all died when Christ died, so I proclaim it. I believe that all were made alive when Christ rose, and I believe it. But I believe that there will be a manifestation of this universally in what is known as his coming, his parousia, in which 1 Peter 1.7 says there will be a universal revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when every eye sees him, even those that pierced him. And everyone will realize that he died sacrificially for his slaughterers. And so for all. Our justification occurred when Christ died. Now this is brought into focus when we understand the word pistis, which again is a key in Romans. P-I-S-T-I-S. Pistis. And that becomes a key word. It means faith or faithfulness. And I'm almost totally convinced that it means faithfulness almost everywhere in Romans. Because we find in Galatians 3.23 and 25, I'm being careful to document these things, that faith is said to have come before faith came and now that faith came. It's not referring to an act of believing on our part or on anyone's part. It's referring to an historical phenomenon. The first advent of Jesus Christ. When Christ came, 
the faithfulness that justifies came with him. There are many things in Romans that mean the same thing, only from a different accent, with a different accent. For example, the scripture says we are justified by his blood in Romans 5, 9. And so he says, how much more then will we be saved from wrath by his life? He's combating this wrathful preacher in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Those aren't Paul's words. Romans 1, 18 to 32 is not Paul. Paul never preached a sermon that long without mentioning the name of Jesus Christ. Paul never did. No preacher worth his salt can preach that many words without mentioning Jesus Christ because we preach Christ and him crucified. We know nothing else. So we have a preacher that sidelined Jesus Christ. He believes that he died for sins over here, but then he front loads the gospel with all kinds of stuff we got to do on this side. Protestants do that. Catholics do that. And equally, with equal accountability to God for sidelining the Savior. So Paul is replying to that wrath that's being revealed from heaven and saying that we were justified by his blood, and that means everybody. Therefore, we will how much more be saved by his life, his resurrection, from wrath. You see, it's a lot different when you preach with Jesus Christ as the heart and center of the message. And so, our justification occurred when Christ died. When he said, finished. When were you justified, someone would ask me. I'll say, when Jesus said, to tell us die. To tell us die, if you want to say it that way. Tell us die. How about just finished? It's finished. And so why does Romans 5, 9 say we're justified by his blood? And then why does it also say we're justified by faith, which is faithfulness? Because it's the same thing. Justified by Christ's blood is the same as being justified by Christ's faithfulness because his blood is a word for the climax of his faithful obedience to God, which was to the extent of death by crucifixion. So justified by faithfulness has to be a justification by Jesus Christ's faithfulness. See, this gospel doesn't detach you from Jesus Christ. It connects you to Jesus Christ. We are justified. Call it rectified, but I'll stay with the word justified because that's where all the bees are hovering around. That's the honey that all the bees are hovering around right now. All the theologians are having their battles around that word right now. But when this word pistis is used in its apocalyptic sense, which is used throughout Paul, for example, in Galatians 123, 325, 5.6, and 6.10, it is not referring to an act of believing, but an historical event, the Christ event. Romans 3.21, I'm not going to do this heavily today. The, I'll be, the exegesis is coming up in, the, in our near future. But Romans 3, 21 to 25 illustrates this very dramatically and uses terminology that indicates evidence. Paul stacks terminology that 
has to do with the presentation of proof or evidence. He uses the words to testify. He uses the word to manifest. He uses the word to present evidence. He uses the word indixin, which is evidence, twice, all in Romans 3.21 through 25. And that whole passage, 321 to 25, is a turning point in the whole of the epistle. And it's a pivot on which Paul's argument turns in the whole epistle. All of our Sunday morning messages are related to Romans in toto, something that pervades all of Romans. Romans 321, really all the way to 31, is the pivotal turning point upon which the rest of the argument hangs. In fact, As Philip Ziegler said in his book, Militant Grace, which I'm plotting through right now, he says it occupies a crucial place in Paul's argument, as indeed the redemptive events referred to are the fountainhead of Paul's gospel. If it is true that Paul's theology is to a remarkable extent soteriology, or the study of salvation, then no event carries greater foundational significance than the demonstration of God's righteousness in the saving death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. A key term here in Romans 3.25, and I'm getting up to the place where I'm going to just plain go into proclamation, is hilasterion, H-I-L-A-S-T-E. R-I-O-N. Paul only uses it once. Hilasterion. It's H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And it's used in Exodus 25, 21. It's used in Leviticus 16, 2. It's used throughout the Levitical passages for the mercy seat. And it's called mercy seat. It's the Hebrew word kapora. And it genuinely means mercy seat. It's a propitiatory, but it really is a mercy seat because it's the seat or the center and the heart of the heart of God's work, saving work, which is called mercy. Remember, his whole point in Romans 11 is to get to 1132, where God imprisons everyone in disobedience, in order to have mercy upon all. But the seed of that mercy is the crucified Christ. The seed of that propitiation is the Christ himself. Now, you can go through life sinning and rebounding if you want, or you can realize this. If anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So, a key term in that passage, that pivotal passage, is hilasterion, kaporeth. And again, Ziegler is right to say, if this is correct, it is significant that the mercy seat in the Old Testament serves specifically as the locus of revelation and theophany. That means that this mercy seat is the location and the heart where God appears, where he is apocalypsed, where he is manifested. And this is exactly what John writes in what I consider to be the key verse in the Gospel of John, not 3.16, although that's close, 
But John 8, 28, when you will have lifted me up, then you will know that I am he. The apocalypse of God himself is Jesus Christ crucified. And even his resurrection and even our resurrection in him is a horizon to view that retrospectively and to see our so great salvation. That's why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He doesn't say raised. He says crucified because even in resurrection, the focus is on the crucifixion. Even from the standpoint of ascension and the view we're afforded by that, it's the crucified Christ. Now, even though he's raised, we still review him as the one who was crucified. And so the mercy seat is the locus of revelation in the Ark of the Testimony. It begins also in John where Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. That theme goes throughout John. And as we know, they made an image. They actually kept that bronze serpent on a pole, and they kept it. And it wasn't until Hezekiah's reign, Hezekiah had that thing obliterated and turned to powder because the people began to worship the image of the bronze serpent, rather than realize the significance of the crucified Christ. And so he called it Nahashtan. You worship an image, and they smashed it. They turned it to powder. That's 2 Corinthians 8, or 2 Kings, rather, 18.4. But in John 12, Jesus said, Now the prince of this world has been deposed. Now. And then he said, And if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. That's all creation. That's all people in all the times in which they lived. That's the mystery. That unless we have it, we're not preaching the gospel. That's why we pray, we ask you to pray, that we may make known the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that the the justification of all humankind has already occurred. The reconciliation of all humankind has already occurred, but has yet to be universally manifested. I'm just telling you now, through things that I believe, what will one day be manifested to all in the future. The church has gotten the wrong idea. They think Christ came to save the church. Christ came to save the world. And the church is privileged to be precocious possessors of that salvation who proclaim it to the rest of the world. And how do we do it? We do it by loving one another. We do it by loving. If you love one another as I have loved you, that is, at Calvary's cross, then the world will know that you're my disciples. And by this unity rooted in love, the world will know that you sent me, Father. And that's what Romans is all about. It's all about a universal redemption applied to a situation that produces unity and therefore expands this glorious gospel. And so, let me say this again. Our condition under sin, a power too great for us, no matter who you are or how pious, 
Sin is a power too great for us. And so is death. Even science can't conquer that. They can hold it off, maybe. They can even prolong life a little bit longer, usually under conditions of greater misery than if you had died. But they cannot conquer death. Only Christ did that. Again, our condition under sin is only known by a retrospective horizon seen by us in Christ. So it's not a matter of, oh, I'm a terrible, horrible sinner. I believe in you, Jesus. No, it's an apocalyptic action by which God slams us into Christ and we look back and say, man, was I saved from something. And that's two different ways to look at Romans. It's an interesting debate. I think on YouTube you can find it uh, where Douglas Moo, who was the most highly touted Romans expositor until Campbell came along, and then Campbell and him do a debate, and it's all based on that. Is it a retrospective? And Campbell, I think, argues strongly for it. And, you know, I think he won the debate, but it's, I think you can find it on YouTube. It's Campbell versus Moo, M-O-O. And I won't say anything about the milk of the word, but anyways. Um, Justified by his blood. Now, why are we justified by his blood in Romans 5, 9? And elsewise, we are justified by his faithfulness. Because, again, the blood is the climax of his faithfulness. It's the climax or the culmination or the final point where he says, finished, of his obedience. So we are justified by Christ's obedience, rectified by Christ's obedience. By his one act of righteousness, says Romans 5.19, all are constituted as righteous by his one act of righteousness. What is his one act of righteousness? I think it's everything that he was and did from his incarnation till his death. His one act of righteousness, his life was an act of righteousness. His life was an act of righteousness that culminated in his death, which was salvific for all of creation. Say nothing of all of humanity, all flesh. And so it makes sense every once in a while while I'm preaching this, Isaiah 40, verse 5, pops, as it's quoted in Luke 3, 6. All flesh altogether will see, and that word see, horao, there means experience the salvation of the Lord. There is a future manifestation of this. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, and it's the assurance of things hoped for. What I hope for is the glory of God being resplendent through all the universe and through all people in all their times, whenever they've lived. That's the hope of the glory. We, we have a right to boast in that. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's valid boasting, a whole valid system of boasting. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, we have peace with God, which is the present experience in some measure of salvation, of our reconciliation with God, and we boast in the hope 
of the glory of God. But what is the hope of the glory of God? It's the expectation that the salvation wrought at the cross will be universally realized and experienced in glory. I have that. I believe that. And I I only say that because it's a gift of faith. And so I preach according to the measure of my faith. So I've come a long way since 1989. Recently, a fellow preacher that used to sit in these pews or chairs said, Rick reached the peak of his accuracy in 1989 when he was a strong dispensationalist. Ever since then, he says, I won't listen to him. But that's kind of sad because we have grown a little since then. But now, faith is the assurance. Faith is a gift. Faith is God's gift to you and me. That is the assurance of a universal glory in all creation. So we're saved in hope. We're saved in hope. We're saved into a realm of expectation of universal glory. When all the universe, which is now enslaved to entropy, science even calls it that, entropy. It's a corruptive force that leads toward extinction. And that's what entropy is. God reversed entropy at Calvary's cross. And the coming of Christ will be the universal manifestation of what was already done. Your faith doesn't even secure reconciliation for you. It only causes you to correspond to your state of reconciliation. So then, justified by his blood, which is the climax of his faithfulness, is also known as or is equal to justified by his Obedience, rectified by his one act of righteousness. The only act which leads to our justification is not our act of believing, but the advent of Jesus Christ into history, culminating with his death, followed by his resurrection. I don't know how much more I can pronounce this, but I think if I ever do do something else in life besides teach here, it'll be proclaiming. It'll be reducing all these things to the proclamation of this one act of Christ. You think proclamation is the elementary thing and then explanation is the more difficult thing. It's the opposite. You can explain all day long. It's proclamation that's the hard thing because that reduces everything down to a powerful proclamation that actually produces salvation in the listeners. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, Romans 1.17. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, his saving act in Christ is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And that faithfulness is God's in Christ leading to Christ's in us. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. For as it stands written, Habakkuk 2.4, the main Old Testament verse for Romans, as it stands written, my righteous one or the righteous one, Christ, shall live by his faithfulness. In other words, 
his resurrection arises from his faithfulness, which led to his death by crucifixion. He lives, the righteous one, Christ, by his own faithfulness. In other words, we could say it this way, if you want to turn it this way a little bit, his resurrection is a reward for his faithfulness. And so we have a reward that's reckoned to us, not by works, but by grace. In other words, we have Messiah's reward for his faithfulness applied to us as life. He said it this way in John 14, 19. Again, John and Paul, very profitable partnership. Jesus said to his disciples, because I live, that means ultimately because I live in resurrection as a result of my faithful obedience to the Father to the point of death, because I live, you will live also. And that means you will be included in my crucifixion, in my death, in my burial, in my resurrection, in my ascension. You will be in me, you will live. And as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, and there's no other way to read it unless you want to walk it back, which is what theologians do all the time. You might have a leader say, there is no hell. And the rest of the leaders all hover around and walk it back. Well, he didn't mean that. You take away that, we don't have any way to enslave people anymore. You take away hell as our central doctrine, as Protestants or Catholics, you've taken away our ability to enslave people into coming to church out of guilt, into giving and giving and giving out of guilt and fear. You see, I don't care what the Pope said. Ever. Unless what he says accidentally correlates with Scripture. Once in a while, one does that. And you shouldn't care what I say unless what I say correlates with Scripture. And you can look it up and find it and document it and search the Scriptures and see if it's so. Otherwise, I don't care what I say. I saw two cardinals fighting in the tree the other day. I don't care what those cardinals say. But if you ever see two cardinals, two males... You wonder, now you know why they used to call them the St. Louis Cardinals or the Cardinals, the football team's great name. You know what they do? They actually hunker down and face each other like football players on the line, offense versus defense. So Cardinals is a good name. I don't care what a Cardinal says. All he can do is squawk as far as I'm concerned. Unless he sometimes may accidentally quote something scriptural like John Paul II did when he said that Christ's redemption has a cosmic dimension. And he did. Or when Ratzinger said, Pope Benedict, when he said the fire that people are all concerned about in the future is none other than Jesus Christ himself who consumes all the works that we've done that are useless. The fire is nothing other than Jesus Christ. And he said, there's no purgatory that is an extended concentration camp for people like God's crueler than Hitler. Yes, I'm going to answer the question about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
how that it is and how it, it is Jesus Christ total denial that there's such a place as a Hades where people burn. He denies it utterly. But because people misinterpret myth with Jesus properly overturned, because people think that an Egyptian myth that was retold seven times within rabbinical Jewish literature is the fact of the afterlife, they're going to use that because of two reasons. There's two reasons why people think there's hell based on Lazarus and the rich man parable. One, they don't know the scriptures, which throughout speak of the restoration of all things, nor do they know the power of God for whom nothing is impossible. It's harder for a rich man to go to heaven than for an or to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And his disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And he said, well, with men it's impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. With God, it's even possible to end that gulf that's fixed between the rich man. Oh, but no, don't worry, the Pope fixed that. Rich men are bad souls. They just disappear. So he's graduated all the way to annihilationism now, which is not biblical. You know what God did for bad souls? Bad souls. The Bible calls them ungodly. You know what God did? He justified the ungodly. How did he do that? Christ died for the ungodly. So what happens to bad souls? They get justified. If only... Some religious leaders that get the point. But you can see them all claim, oh, there is a hell, there is a hell, there is a hell. He was just he was just saying what he really believes in his heart. No, he wasn't. He was just, you know, he didn't really say that. That was the big thing that popped for Easter weekend. What happened on Easter weekend? Well, the Pope popped with a saying. He doesn't really believe there's, and he probably doesn't believe there's a hell. Anybody with any sense wouldn't. But they got to walk it back because there goes the dungeon. There goes the income. There goes the plantation in which we enslave people so they can work to become saints. So. Justified by grace is what he says in Romans 3.24. Justified by grace. And why does Titus 3 say, it is not according to works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. His mercy, which means a work of righteousness that he has done. It is according to a work of righteousness that he has done that has saved us. And then by the washing or the bath of regeneration by the Holy Spirit who is poured out generously upon us, by grace you've been justified. Titus 3, 5 to 7 is the perfect place where he reiterates our justification. And he never mentions faith at all, never once, because he says it's according to mercy that God saved us and the mercy is what happened at the mercy seat, the hilasteria and the propitiatory when Christ died for our sins.
So, justified by faith means Christ's faithfulness. Faith came into the world when Christ came into the world. And his faithfulness culminated in his act of obedience all the way to the extent of death by crucifixion, where he became the mercy seat, the propitiatory, the place of the expiation of sins, the place where sins came to be nothing. They came to be expiated. He appeared once in the end of the ages, at the culmination of the ages. That means at the end point of one age and the beginning of another, he came to put away sin by the offering of himself. Hebrews 9.26. And so, we were crucified with Christ. If one died for all, then all died. Therefore, I can say of myself, I was crucified with Christ. Yet when he rose, all rose, so I can say, nevertheless, I live. Can I not say that? Can I, is it okay if I say that? If it's Galatians 2.20, is it okay? Is it okay if I say it because Colossians 2.20 says, you have died to the powers, the forces of this cosmos. Sin, that means sin and death. Do I have to be circumcised or does the scripture say you were circumcised with a circumcision not made by human hands when God cut you off from sin and death and the Adamic ontology and the old age? That's the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision, Paul says, not those who demand the physical right. We are the true circumcision, he says, who worship by the spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and who have no confidence in the flesh, not even in the flesh believing, in an act of believing. Pistis, as it's used in Galatians 3, 23 and 25, is the historical phenomenon of the coming of Christ to the world, culminating in his sacrificial death, which was an obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion for us. So we were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not we, but Christ lives in us. And the life we live in the flesh, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Yes, we still live in this body. We live in a body of flesh. But we have a higher integration now that Christ has invaded our humanity. We live in the flesh by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us that much, and gave himself for us. You know what this is? Latin, it's living extra nos, extra nos, outside of ourselves. It's living in Christo, in Christ, in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's living in the newness of the spirit, in novitate spiritus in the Latin, Romans 7, 6. This is the newness of life that we were raised to and that we live not on our own steam but by the power of the Spirit of the Son of God who was sent into our hearts crying out, Daddy, Abba. It is God the worker in you, says Philippians 2.13. It is God the worker in you. 
even to will and to work in behalf of his pleasure, which is, which asserts itself graciously. Philippians two thirteen. So, final gear. If one died for all, then all died. Second Corinthians five fourteen. The implications of this have yet to be sounded and fathomed. That means all died when Christ died. But it also means, because he rose, that all are in Christ resurrected. This is the apocalypse of the mystery of God. Back in 1989, I thought the mystery was Jew and Gentile together in one body. Now I realize that that's just pars pro toto. That's just a part of the whole. The whole is all things in the heavens and the earth, all beings in all of their times. As Paul said, in the fullness of times means everything in all of its times that ever existed are reconciled together and headed up on a kephalio in Christ. That's the mystery in toto. I only knew it in 1989, pars prototo, with a part rather than the whole. There are many parts to the mystery, but the whole is a universal reconciliation. So my dear friend who thought I stopped being accurate in 1989 should understand that I stopped only seeing the mystery in the tiny part that he still sees it in rather than the whole. And I'm saying that in love. I really am. I'm saying that in love, and I am saying I'm talking about a friend. So, it doesn't matter if the Pope says there is no hell or there is a hell. Or he says bad souls disappear. Because God justifies bad souls. That's, he's in the business of doing that. He justified the people that said crucify him. What do you think of that? And it was his very crucifixion that justified his crucifiers. What do you think of that? Well, I never thought of God that way. Well, you better start. That's God. You want to see God? You want to see him at the height and the heart of his mercy? You see him crucified in Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. You've seen the ultimate theophany, the ultimate appearing of who God is in a crucified prophet, beaten beyond recognition, hanging shamefully and naked on a tree. There he is. The church backtracks on this when any spiritual leader says it because hell and purgatory are the way they keep people enslaved. The same is true with Protestant churches and all forms of godliness which deny the power thereof. All forms of godliness, a form of godliness which denies the power thereof. You still believe people go to hell and burn? You have denied the power of the gospel which is utterly saving. You don't know the scriptures which speak throughout of the restoration of all things. Nor do you know the power of God for whom nothing is impossible. With God, the rich man will be saved because nothing is impossible. So let me tell you a parable about a a rich man burning in hell just so I can say that that's impossible. Just giving hints. 
Luke doesn't say in 3.6, all flesh together will see the salvation of God and then make Jesus say that except this rich man burning in flames. That's not the point. He's telling, retelling a myth that started in Egypt in the 12th century BC and kept getting retold and retold and retold until the Jewish people had seven versions of it, some of which actually appear in the Targum only. In this one, it's a Torah scholar versus a merchant, a rich merchant. And they kept retelling it. So Jesus retells it, but he tells two things differently. And by doing that, he undoes the whole myth of people in flames after death in hell. He says, in, in essence, what the Pope may have suggested but doesn't have the guts to stick with. And he has all his little minions, all the little cardinals in the tree saying, no, that's not what he really meant. I'm getting really sick of beta males, as they're called. Beta males. People that are afraid to be assertive with the truth. If you're going to be alpha, that's a wolf. But if you're going to be an alpha male in the pulpit, at least assert the truth and let the chips fall where they may and let the beta males go out and do their beta-ing. In fact, now it's gamma males. They don't want to say anything. At all. So in closing... It doesn't matter what the Pope says. The church backtracks because they need the doctrine of hell. Christendom tends to forget that the horizon of God's salvation is not the church, but the world. The horizon of God's salvation, the extent that God's salvation reaches, is not the church, but the world. God loved the world so much. The church has to get it through its heart and mind that it's only a witness to the world of the saving grace of Christ for the world. God didn't invade this evil age to save the church. He invaded this evil age in Galatians 1.4 to save the world in John 3.17. He recruits the church to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world According to the revelation of the mystery of universal Christological salvation, that's the mystery. The mystery is a universal Christ-centered salvation. And so again, you don't need a pope or a preacher. You don't need me or anyone else to tell you about hell or the lack thereof. The horizon of God's saving design prevents the possibility of any person eternally perishing. Period, over and out, end of sentence, end of argument. So world, shut up. Church, shut up and testify to the world. So, see, what I just said today is the heart of the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross today isn't that you're saved by grace without human works. It's that God saves everybody by the act of Christ, by the act of God in Christ. That's what's offensive to the church-going, church-pew-sitting Christian, so-called. And I say so-called because to 
not understand that gospel is to not be Christian in what the word means, like Christ. So I think Jürgen Moltmann did say something that sums up the matter. And I do pay attention to theologians that say stuff that happens to be scriptural. And I will close with this. He says, the Christian doctrine about the restoration of all things denies neither damnation nor hell. On the contrary, it assumes that in his suffering and dying, Jesus Christ suffered the true and total hell of God forsakenness for the reconciliation of the world. And experienced for us the true and total damnation of sin. Does not the Bible say what the law couldn't do? God did sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh, in his flesh. He became sin. Does not the Bible say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Then who experienced the damnation in the hell other than Jesus Christ? So to say somebody can even experience it is a blasphemy against the cross of Christ. It makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ. It makes your God your belly. Now, he goes on to say, it is precisely here that the divine reason for the reconciliation of the universe is to be found. It is not the optimistic dream of a purified humanity. That's what universalists of the Unitarian type say. Oh, it's going to be a... You can just hear the beta male saying it. It's going to be... the. It's the, a purified humanity one day. We're going to just get better and better. He says this, it is Christ's descent into hell that is the ground for the confidence that nothing will be lost, but that everything will be brought back again and gathered into the eternal kingdom of God. The true foundation, he closes with, for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross. And the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross can only be the restoration of all things. I agree with that because that's Bible doctrine. That's biblical truth. That's the gospel. That's the mystery of the gospel that was kept silent in ages past, but is now being manifested right in the prophets, the writings of the prophets by the command of the eternal God. But he needs people that believe it to preach it. Because if we're going to prophesy and preach this, it has to correspond with the gift of faith that God gave us. I preached it because I believe it. We believe, therefore, we speak. 2 Corinthians 4.13. So fault me for my faith, if you will. That doesn't make me move an inch or a centimeter or a millimeter, if you want to go with European measures. All right, let's end this and go into communion. Please follow the lead of the capable and gifted ushers.
All are welcome to participate in this communion. And please be silent in the reception of the elements, and then we'll begin immediately when you're all in possession of them. We had communion, and the Eucharist, on the day that we began Romans, the study of Romans, and celebrated with the Lord's Supper as is appropriate, because we celebrate today an unconditional covenant called the New Covenant, which is a covenant in his blood, and the blood of Christ is that which justifies. How much more, then, will we be saved from wrath by his resurrection life, in both of which we participate. So today, on the 40th, the completion of the 40th lesson of Romans the Epistle, in which we have now 40 times proclaimed Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, mystery of God's intent to summarize everything in Christ in the heavens and earth, and thus to set his whole universal household in order. We have to understand that all beings, all things that have had being, that once did not have being, but were called into being in all of the times in which they existed in this world, are going to be summed up in Christ and in his life. That's the effect of his death. And the pistis faithfulness that saves is not an act of human believing, but an act of Jesus Christ on our behalf. God, and this is the heart of the heart of Romans, I'll let you in on a secret. The heart of the heart of the heart of Romans is 831. If God is for us like that, who can be against us? Will God be against us? Who justifies? Will Christ who died? And so when Paul said, what I received from the Lord is just what I passed on to you, that the Lord Yeshua, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had made the baraka, or the blessing, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. For you. It's for you. Because God is for you. Do this as a memorial to me. Likewise, also the cup after the meal. He said, this cup is the new covenant effected by my blood. He didn't say contract. He said covenant. Unconditional. Unilateral. Do this as often as you drink it as a memorial to me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord, it says. You proclaim the death of the Lord from the retrospective horizon offered by resurrection. And in your case, rectification, justification. From that standpoint, we proclaim his death, his death for us. So Paul says, let a person examine himself first, and then he may eat. You examine yourself, and this is what I want you to come up with. Here's your, 
Here's what you come up with after your examination. You've been acquitted. You've been justified. You've been rectified. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And as the song said earlier, you have seen Jesus in your soul and in your heart. And all that you've ever done before doesn't matter, whether it's good or bad. It's all Christ. So we discern our bodily existence. We discern the body. We discern that we are in bodies, that we will have resurrection bodies. We remember his death and its justifying effect. That's what we are celebrating here in this communion service. We recall his blood that affected the new covenant the unconditional covenant by which a new creation comes about through the creative and redemptive act of God in Christ, which will include the creation of bodies like his in the resurrection. And so this involves these elements, which we call the fruit of the vine and the grain. The vine and the grain represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, but it also represents the fruits of creation, and that even creation, the vines and the grains, will be redeemed. Even creation, even the sparrow that falls. And how much more are you than many sparrows? Discerning the needs of others, which is exemplified in waiting until all receive the food. I wait for the nod of the ushers because if everyone's received it, that's a sign of waiting until all receive the food and drink of the Lord's Supper, thoughtfulness of others. And then we recognize the value today of being bodily together, bodily together. In an age of Internet, bodily together, together, bodily. And we thank you, Father, for this privilege. And in the night in which he was handed over, betrayed is good, but handed over. He was handed over for our sins. And the night that he was betrayed, handed over for our sins to be raised up because our justification was wrought by his death. In the night that he was handed over, he said, eat this bread, it's for you, it's my body. It's for you. And in the same night, he said, drink you, all of you drink this, for it's the blood of the new covenant by which you're justified. Drink it all. On the first night, when this was instituted, they sang a hymn together. Jesus led the hymn as he will lead the universal chorus of praise to the Father. One day soon. And so we close with a hymn as they did. On the way out, please dispose of your cups and maintain silence until you get outside and then enjoy the fellowship that we have in Christ today. <laughs>